Amen. Good to see you on this Tuesday morning. I know we're still trickling in, but it's really good to be together. And I'm going to get us started, so hopefully we can have a good time of discussion at the end. So grab your donuts and your pigs in the blanket and uh, find your seat, and we will get started. I don't think I have any big announcements this morning, but um, what a joy just to come in around the Word and, and have this time together as men. So let me pray for us as we kick off our morning together. Father, we come to you this morning needing your grace, needing your wisdom, needing your spirit to open our eyes to see all that we have in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the study you've set before us this semester to really focus on you and your attributes. And we pray, Lord, each week that we wouldn't just nod that you are loving or holy or faithful, but we would see the ways that you are that to us, for us, in Jesus. And so, Lord, as we turn our attention to your faithfulness today, we pray that you would amaze us and overwhelm us and open up our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our topic, as you know, is the attributes of God. And this morning our topic is the faithfulness of God. And I just want to say a couple things before we read our text. There's a little book by A.W. Pink, who was a pastor and author and was born in the late 1800s and died in 1952. And so his Attributes of God book is not a new book. And so realize when you hear what he says about a couple things that he's writing decades ago, but also notice that the world he describes sounds a lot like our own. And so this is what we want to do this morning. We want to lift our eyes above this scene of ruin and behold the one who is faithful in all things at all times. And I think we know what it means to be a faithful husband or a faithful friend. By God's grace, we try to be faithful men, but it's always imperfect. But when we look to the Lord, what we see is perfect faithfulness. His word is always true. He's completely trustworthy. He is truth. And he makes promises and covenants and he keeps them. He doesn't lie or change his mind. A systematic theologian named Herman Bovink says, all that proceeds from him bears the stamp of truthfulness. He's perfectly faithful. So you may look at Matthew 1 this morning, and you've probably seen it before, and you just see a bunch of names. On the surface, it sort of looks like the most boring text in the Bible. But dig a little deeper, and the faithfulness of God is written over every name and in every relationship that's basically demonstrated there. And at the center of all of this is Jesus Christ, uh, who in Revelation 1-5 is called the faithful witness. So I hope you'll see this in the text, but I think my hope is that you'll also begin to see it in your life. God's perfect faithfulness written over your life. So join with me and read along as I read from Matthew 1, the first 17 verses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. So that section takes us from the patriarchs all the way to the kingdom. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, 
and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So that takes us from the kingdom to exile. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Sends God's word for us this morning, given to us by him, by his grace, and for our good. So let's talk about this. There are two Old Testament characters really at the center of this genealogy, and they're mentioned in verse 1, where Matthew refers to Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham. And there's more covenants in the Old Testament, I think you know, than the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. But because of our text this morning, I want to focus on God's great promises to Abraham and David to make the point, first, that God is faithful to his promises. And there's much to say about covenants, how they worked in the ancient Near East, and all the sort of aspects of a covenant. That's not really my focus this morning. I'm going to focus more on just the promises and God making the promises and keeping the promises. Um, as we look at a couple passages this morning, they'll be familiar to you, to many of you. But I want you to try to look with them or at them with new eyes. Think about this. What is God actually promising? What is he really saying? Because if the Lord is perfectly faithful and he's making these great promises, he's putting his name on the line to do amazing things. And the question really is, why would he do that? (laughs) Why would he put himself on the line for that? We know the phrase, under promise and over deliver. (laughs) It's safe, right? They don't promise too much. And then when you come through bigger than that, you know, everyone's happy. And what's interesting about God is he always seems to be over-promising. He writes these massive checks, you could say, and somehow he's always good for them, and then some. So I don't know what you think about the Lord this morning. I don't know what's going on in your life. But as you hear about this faithful God making great promises, ask yourself, why does he do this? And what does it have to do with me? So God is faithful to his promises. How do we see this in the life of Abraham? If you have your Bible, you could turn to Genesis 12, but you don't have to. Genesis 12 is the famous passage where God calls Abraham. At the time, he was named Abram, but I'll just refer to him as Abraham. And the question is, what is God promising Abraham? Genesis 12, 1 through 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I'll make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So there's different aspects of this promise, of this call of Abraham, and one is land. That this, this land promise is going to unfold over time. Right now it's just the land that I'll show you. <laughs> but we'll come to see that it's the land of Canaan. It's what we call the promised land. So the Lord is promising this man, who's about 75 years old, it says in verse 4 of the same chapter, He's promising in prime real estate (laughs) in this place in the world where there's a bunch of people, all with ites at the end of the name, and all the Canaanites and Amorites, and they're all ites. They're all there, and they don't want to (laughs) sell. They don't want to sell the land. So this is a big promise. God's putting himself on the line to get Abraham and his people into the land. And then there's also this promise about seed or descendants or children. The Lord says he will make of Abraham a great nation. So let that sink in. It's a 75-year-old man with a wife of about the same age. These two are long past their childbearing years. He should be a grandfather or great-grandfather by now. And the Lord's telling him he's going to be a new daddy. That's probably a bigger promise than the land promise, right? And then there's the blessing piece. The Lord says he'll bless Abraham and make his name great. And in Abraham, or through Abraham, the whole world will experience God's blessing. So in this fascinating moment, the Lord is basically narrowing his focus, what he's doing in the world, down to one man and one family. I'm going to focus on you, Abraham, and I'm going to bless you, but not just for you. I'm going to bless you so that through you, my blessing will flow to the whole world. That's probably a bigger promise than even the seed promise. So the Lord promises all of this to Abraham in Genesis 12. Then in Genesis 15, the Lord makes a covenant with Abraham to make it even more official. And if you remember, that's that strange scene where the animals are cut in half and you sort of create like a gauntlet. And, and the idea is that, you know, the parties in the covenant would walk through these dead animals and sort of like, hey, if I don't keep my part of the covenant, like, may what happened to these animals happen to me? But as that happens, where's Abraham? <laughs> He's asleep. And God symbolically passes through as like a smoking fire pot. It's really fascinating. But it's, it's basically like God walks through and says, you know, may it fall on me if I don't keep the covenant and Abraham's over here asleep. So God's basically putting it all on himself. In that sense, it's more like unconditional. Abraham, I'm going to do this. You know, whether you do your part or not, this is what I'm promising you. So that happens in Genesis 15. Then Genesis 17, God gives Abraham circumcision as a sign of the covenant. And so all this stuff starts to unfold. And it's worth noting right out of the gate that the odds of God fulfilling this promise seem incredibly small. So much seems to depend on Abraham and Sarah having a child. And how is that going to happen? So from the start, like these promises appear as dead as Sarah's womb. It's amazing that the Lord would make these promises in this situation. And it's around 25 years after Genesis 12 that Abraham and Sarah finally have a child. They have Isaac. God is faithful to his promise. And then in Genesis 22, the Lord asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And again, the promise hangs on the edge of a knife, like literally. But the Lord provides a ram as a substitute. Isaac is not sacrificed. And the promise rolls on. In Genesis 26, the Lord restates the promise to Abraham's son Isaac. In Genesis 28, he restates the promise to Isaac's son Jacob. And when we realize the enormity of these promises, it's hard to see why the Bible so it's hard not it's not hard to see why the Bible so often refers to God as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's the faithful God who made these astounding promises to this family and kept them. 
So we see in this genealogy God's faithfulness to his promises over approximately 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus Christ. And think about that. What did God do over all these generations, not just the patriarchs, but all the way to Jesus? Preserved Abraham's descendants for 2,000 years. Saved his people multiple times from famine and war. Brought his people through slavery and oppression in Egypt. Brought his people into the promised land. Established a kingdom under David in this very land. Preserved his people through multiple foreign invasions and deportations. Brought his people back from exile. We could go on and on. So, from a human perspective, at any point, God's promises to Abraham could have failed. But from the Lord's perspective, there was never any doubt. So we see his faithfulness playing out on the grand stage of history. And then Jesus comes, and Matthew says he's the son of Abraham. So what does that mean? It means that he's the one who brings us into the real promised land. You know, not just the Holy Land in the Middle East, but the promised land of living in his presence now, and the hope of living with him in his presence in the new heaven and the new earth forever one day. And Jesus is the one who's ultimately the seed of Abraham. He's the one through whom God blesses the whole world. And isn't it interesting that the gospel begins this way, the son of Abraham, and ends with, hey, all authority has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all nations. Be a blessing to all nations. So through faith in Jesus, anyone can become a son of Abraham, a child of God. It's sort of mind-blowing. What God promised around 4,000 years ago came to fruition nearly 2,000 years ago when Jesus came. And now for the last 2,000 years, we've seen God's blessing go to the nations. So if you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus, you're actually experiencing the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. God's faithful to his promises. And how does that work out in your life? Think of all the things that God has done to bring you to faith in him. So that's how we see God's faithfulness in the life of Abraham. What about in David's life? So in 2 Samuel 7, if you want to turn there, God makes a covenant with David. And if you remember what God promises David in 2 Samuel 7 follows on the heels of David's big desire to build the Lord a house, a temple. Things are going well for David. He looks around and says, I got this great house. God doesn't have a house. His ark's always lived in a tent. I got to do something about that. And as noble as his intentions are, the Lord sends his friend Nathan, who always kind of gets a tough job, right? Um, the Lord sends Nathan to tell David actually no deal. No deal on the house right now. And it's really this amazing picture of God's grace because David is saying, I love you, Lord. I want to do something for you. And the Lord says, no, I love you and I want to do something for you. And the Lord doesn't need David to build a house for him. The Lord plans to build a house for David and it's a house that he never could have imagined. So 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 16 it says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
So again, God makes these great promises, but like with Abraham, he doesn't necessarily say, David, I'll do this if you do this. Again, there's this unconditional element to it. God's saying, I'm going to do this. And what is the Lord promising? That he'll raise up David's offspring. We can see this in Solomon and establish his kingdom. And Solomon will build that house, will build that temple for the Lord. But the Lord's promise extends really far beyond the lives of David and Solomon. The Lord says that David's house and kingdom shall be made sure forever. (laughs) So we watched Sandlot recently, forever. (laughs) It's a long time. It'll be made sure forever before the Lord. David's throne shall be established forever. So in world history, you probably know a few hundred years is actually a long run for a family dynasty in this world. And the Lord says that David will always have a family member reigning on the throne. So the Davidic covenant creates this really incredible expectation for this anointed king, a Messiah in Hebrew. Christ in Greek. Those are the words in different languages. And the title Son of David came to signify these massive kingly expectations. So we're looking for someone like David to defeat the bad guys and bring us back into the land. We're looking for someone to rule over us and bring God's peace and his healing to his people. And this is why people refer to Jesus as the son of David. And you see this in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 9, 27, two blind men say, have mercy on us, son of David. If you're this king who comes and make everything right, heal us. Matthew 12, 23, the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Matthew 15, 22, this is a Canaanite woman, and she comes to Jesus and says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Jesus is the true son of David. He's the one who will reign on David's throne forever. He's the long-awaited king of kings, the Messiah, the Christ. He's the faithful shepherd king ruling over God's people. He's the healer restoring and renewing God's world and God's people. And he brings peace, shalom, peace with God, peace with other people. And one day he'll bring the fullness of God's shalom to a renewed creation. So this is about a thousand years after Abraham, but you can say the same thing. What God promised around 3,000 years ago to David came to fruition again nearly 2,000 years ago. And for the last 2,000 years, we've seen God's kingdom coming. So if you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus, you are experiencing the fulfillment of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel. You've bowed the knee to King Jesus. You're experiencing the goodness of living in his kingdom. So God's faithful to his promises. And we see that faithfulness play out over long periods of time. Now we want to see the Lord's faithfulness right now. But God seems to be content, think about it, to work over decades like Abraham waiting for a child, or centuries, like the Israelites trying to get out of Egypt, or even millennia, like God's promises come into fulfillment for Abraham and David. So are we willing to trust that the Lord is faithful when he seems to be slow? Think about Second Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowless, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, 
but that all should reach repentance. If you dig a little deeper into your own story, I bet you will see a lot, just like in Matthew 1, how's the Lord been faithful through your friends? They may be why you're here today. Through your wife, your children, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, through your successes, through your failures, through sickness, through health, through seasons of spiritual growth, and even seasons of drifting away. When we look for God's faithfulness in our lives, it makes a difference because it changes things. Because now, maybe when we can't trace his hand in our life, we can still trust his heart because we know that he's faithful. Or when we're tempted to grumble because what's happening or not happening in our life, we can still give thanks because we know that he's, fa- that he's faithful. Psalm 105 says, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Do we believe that, brothers? So that's really the first point. God is faithful to his promises. As we look at the, um, the genealogy, I want you to also see that God is faithful to his unfaithful and unwanted people. <laughs> He's faithful to his unfaithful and unwanted people. Think about what a genealogy is. It's like a family tree, of course. It's kind of like an old version of Ancestry.com. But in the ancient world, like your genealogy was really more than a family tree. It was like your resume. A genealogy could prove, you set it forward and say, I'm important, (laughs) I'm significant, I'm worthy, I should be the king, or whatever you want to be. Genealogies mattered more then than they do today. I learned something interesting this week about Herod the Great. Uh, Herod died in 4 BC, around that time, so he, he dies right before Jesus comes into the world. He's the father of the Herod in the Gospels, but Herod the Great was part of massive building projects, like the Second Temple and other things around Judea, and he did enough, obviously, to have the Great attached to his name, so he's like the goat of Herod's, you could say. But Herod was, he was half Edomite, he was half Edomite, and he apparently despised this about his genealogy, and wished he could destroy that part of his genealogy because it was embarrassing to him. So there's an old example. Uh, A a newer example is if you've seen the movie Hitch uh, with Will Smith. So Will Smith is a suave dating coach in New York City trying to help his clients do better in their dating lives. And so he's a dating expert, but his own dating life kind of leaves a lot to be desired. So he meets this girl, thinks she's cute, wants to have an amazing first date with her. And so he takes her on jet skis to Ellis Island because he's done his research and found that one of her ancestors came to America, I guess, through Ellis Island. His name is on one of those, you know, sheets in the register. And so he takes her there, and he makes this dramatic presentation before turning the page in the register and showing her the name, and it doesn't go the way that he thought, because she just, like, is choked up, and she's angry, and you can't really tell, like, what's going on, but she's clearly not happy about it. And then we find out that her ancestor was called the Butcher of Cadiz, and not like a butcher at Kubi's, like a... (laughs) (laughs) like a serial killer. And so she falls apart because she would love to forget this part of her family's history. And here's this guy like throwing it in her face on a first date. (laughs) It's really a great scene. Um, Many of us have sketchy characters in our family history. And when that's true, we probably aren't very different from Herod or Hitch's girl. And we'd rather erase that part of our history. But when we read Matthew 1, it's amazing because this genealogy is full of sketchy characters. 
And they're all listed here as part of Jesus' family tree and resume. And Matthew doesn't try to hide anything. It's interesting, he actually goes out of his way to add some details and some people that don't necessarily need to be there. And they would seem to add to the embarrassment. So I want to take a couple of minutes and do a flyover of this passage, and I want you to see God's faithfulness to his unfaithful and unwanted people. So think about really that first paragraph with the patriarchs. Abraham, great Abraham. He trusted God, but he also struggled to trust God. And at one point, he didn't think maybe God was going to come through. And so he got together with Hagar and had a child that way. That's Abraham. Isaac, he played favorites with his kids. Esau came out first as the twin. Um, God seemed to prefer Jacob, but Isaac preferred Esau. And that played out in both of the the boys' lives and and in Jacob's family later. Then you come to Jacob. He cheated his brother out of the birthright and out of the blessing. Esau could have and probably should have killed Jacob. That's what Jacob expected would happen, and so he ran. And later, Jacob played favorites with his own kids, preferred Joseph over everyone else. And we know how that story went. Jesus didn't really need the patriarchs on his resume. They needed him to save them. And yet, here they are, like he wanted them, like he was proud of them. Then you have the kings, and there's some good kings in here, some great men you might say in here, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, but even the good ones had their issues. And think about David, and was he really wanted? Saul shows up looking for the next king, I mean Samuel shows up looking for the next king after Saul, (laughs) Jesse lines up seven of his boys, David's not even there, (laughs) he's out in the fields, because why would anyone choose David? It's like the eighth boy. So unwanted David becomes the king. But then he becomes the king. And he's the man after God's own heart, but he also is the man who committed adultery with Bathsheba, and she's mentioned here, the wife of Uriah. And then he pulled strings so that Uriah would die in battle to try to cover over his mess until Nathan confronted him and said, you are the man. And then Solomon, who had so much wisdom, And we read it in the Proverbs, but in the end, he also had so many wives or so many women. It's like, that doesn't seem like wisdom. And then Hezekiah, who was a good king, but at one point showed, opened up the treasury and showed all the treasures of Israel to their enemies. And that ultimately wasn't a good thing. So even the good ones, it's problematic. But then around half the kings in the list were truly wicked. Ahaz worshipped Assyrian gods, practiced human sacrifice, killed his own son. Rehoboam and Jeconiah were bad. The Bible says Manasseh did more evil than the nations surrounding Israel. Jesus didn't need the kings on his resume. (laughs) They needed him to save them. And yet here they are, almost as if Jesus is proud to have them in his family. And then you have the women. Normally, women wouldn't even be mentioned in a genealogy because all that mattered was the fathers and the sons. Uh, Leah's not mentioned, but Leah's the ugly girl that no one wanted. And when you mention Judah, you have to think of Leah because Jacob loved Rachel, but he didn't really like Leah. And yet God chose Leah to be the one to have Judah, and Jesus would be the lion from the tribe of Judah. 
But think about the women who are mentioned. Tamar. Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. And this is quite a story, but she couldn't have a child. You know, she, she marries one of um, Judah's sons, and then he passes away, I think because he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then she just can't have a child, can't have a child. And ultimately, the bottom line of the story is she kind of disguises herself as a prostitute, and Judah, her father-in-law, sleeps with her, and she has these boys. And so you have like an incestuous relationship that leads to... Uh, Perez and Zara. So that's Tamar. Basically like a prostitute. You have Rahab, a prostitute in Jericho. So not one of the Jewish people, a Gentile. She helped the Israelite spies. And she's here. Then you have Ruth, a Moabite. Not from Israel. And she's here. Right there in David's line. Then you have the wife of Uriah, sort of taking a shot at David, we've already mentioned, married to Uriah the Hittite. So was she a Hittite? Um, She's caught up in David's adultery, and here she is here. And then at the end you have Mary, likely a teenage girl engaged to a carpenter. (laughs) So most of these women, not even part of the people of God, um, a few of them involved in sexual immorality, And the way Jesus includes women in his genealogy is simply amazing. That they're even here to start, but then the way he loved and valued them in his ministry is even more amazing. And really changed the world in the way that women um, are, are, are dignified and raised up. Jesus didn't need these women on his resume. They needed him to save them, but here they are, as if he's proud to call them part of the family. And then maybe a category that we don't think about is the unknowns. I mean, you probably heard that. You're like, there's a lot of these names I don't even recognize, don't know anything about these people. <laughs> we know little to nothing about uh, a lot of people in this genealogy. We Find a couple people who are unknown to you in this passage. I mean, look at it. Find a name or two. Say, I don't know who that is. And ask, Lord, why is this person here? And realize they're there because they're part of God's story. God was faithful to them. He blessed them and kept them so that he might fulfill his promises to Abraham and to David, so that he might even over-deliver on his promises because these people were all part of the family, from Abraham to David to Jesus. We often struggle to trust God's faithfulness when we are unfaithful or when we feel unwanted. But if we take this genealogy seriously, being unfaithful or wanted is almost a prerequisite (laughs) for being part of God's story. Every person on this list had moments when he or she was less than faithful. And every person on this list had moments when he or she was less than desirable. But God was faithful to them, even in their unfaithfulness. And God was loving and gracious toward them when they didn't deserve it. Brothers, most of us will not be patriarchs or kings. (laughs) And we're at a men's Bible study, so we're not going to be women. Which means we're probably going to be in the category of the unknowns in Christian history. We won't be Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. We won't be Augustine or Luther or Calvin. But God will still be perfectly faithful to us. He will be faithful to keep his breathtaking promises even in our lives. And 2 Peter 1.4 says, God has granted to, granted to us his precious and very great promises. So my question is, are we opening God's word and hunting these promises? Are we meditating on them and praying over them, holding on to them? Are his promises really precious and great to us? If God is perfectly faithful, we should lean in 
every time he makes a promise, knowing that he's perfectly faithful and he will fulfill it. So final point, and I'll make it quickly. God is faithful to save his people. We've seen he's faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his people when they're unfaithful and unwanted. But ultimately, this is what this is saying is God is faithful to save his people. A genealogy is a really interesting way to start a gospel, because if you were putting the New Testament together, what would you lead with? Maybe not this. But this is such a powerful way for Matthew to begin the good news of Jesus Christ. Because he doesn't say, once upon a time, or a long time ago in a galaxy far away. He starts here, with a genealogy. Those legends and myths and fairy stories are nice. They teach us nice lessons and tell us what to do with our lives. But a genealogy is a totally different tone. Matthew isn't saying once upon a time because he's not making this up. (laughs) He's not trying to give us advice or a moral of the story. He's talking about what a faithful God actually did in history. And Christianity isn't about what... uh, It is about what God has done. It's not about what we do. There's plenty of things for us to do, but it never starts there. It starts with what God has actually done. And Matthew points to one man in the history of the world and basically says, this is the one we've been waiting for. All of God's promises are yes and amen in this person, Jesus Christ. He's the son of David, the true king. He's come to rule over God's people and all of creation. He's the son of Abraham, the one through whom God will bless the whole world. He's the seed of the woman, if you want to go further back. He's the seed of the woman who came to crush the serpent's head. He is the Savior, the only Savior. In Jesus, we see that God is faithful to save his people. So I want to close with two quotations, because I think they really summarize, one, what we've heard this morning, and two, how we should respond. So the first is from Paul Tripp, Advent devotional, Come Let Us Adore Him. And Paul Tripp says this, Think about the fact that over the thousands and thousands of years between the sin of Adam and Eve and the birth of Jesus, God stayed faithful in every way and in every moment to his purpose, to send his Redeemer's Son. God exercised his power and authority to guide human, natural, international events so that the time and circumstances would be as they needed to be for the coming of the Messiah. The biblical narrative is filled with hope. The years between the fall of Adam and Eve and the coming of Jesus present a powerful promise to us that God can be trusted. They tell us that no matter what it takes and how long it takes, God will always do exactly what he's promised to do. Amen. So are we overwhelmed by the faithfulness of God? Can we see it in history, in the Bible? Can we see it in our own history? And then if we see it, how should we respond to the faithfulness of God? Just a simple little sentence that I saw from Charles Spurgeon. He said, faith is a simple and utter dependence and believing in the faithfulness of God, a dependence upon the promise of God. Faith is a simple and utter dependence and believing in the faithfulness of God, a dependence upon the promise of God. So faith is looking to Jesus But there's a way to understand that in the sense that I'm trusting in his faithfulness, not my own. I'm not faithful. I'm looking to the faithful one. And I'm trusting that he has done everything necessary. And I'm trusting that he's made these promises and kept them. And that is my hope. He is faithful. So are we trusting, brothers, not in ourselves and our faithfulness, but in the Lord and in his great faithfulness? You remember the... Lamentations 3, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. 
The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we get to recount your faithfulness today, and we pray that it would stir our hearts, that we would see all that you've promised and all that you've done through history and even in our own stories, Lord. So um, we just praise you for your great faithfulness and pray that this morning it would feel like new mercies for us to remember who you are. And so, Lord, continue your faithfulness to us as you promised. Lord, make us men that by your grace more and more reflect that faithfulness in our relationships, in our work, uh, that we might uh, shine for Jesus and point people to the one who truly is faithful and trustworthy uh, in every way. So bless these conversations and be with us today. Uh, We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.